Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. We're picking up in this episode where we left off with the last one. Apologies if it sounds like we're kind of jumping in the middle of a conversation here, but this was the tail end of what Robbie and I were talking about on the last podcast about Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter. Of course, since we released that podcast, he did. Apparently, he is taking control of the giant communication platform. So yeah, just another billionaire aggressively seizing control of a huge information platform in the U.S. that 25% of Americans use. The majority of those get their news from this outlet. No, this is not a good thing. No, this is not going to preserve free speech. This is just more hopium to the disaffected masses thinking that a billionaire can save us from the very problems that their existence exemplifies. Well, speaking of being able to control the flow of information to the small subsect of American society and Westerners who basically live on Twitter to get their information, not only the promotion of the Kiev Independent as like the main mm. news source for Ukraine, but of course the featured moments tab that shows, you know, what the war crime de jour, you know, like from Russia. Uh-huh. Um, and the one that I spoke about on the last podcast of the ho- the hospital bombing, remember? And how there was like several iterations of the story that happened where Russia claimed that it was TikTok actresses in the yeah. photographs that were circulated. And then it came out that the woman was real. She did have a baby. Another woman died. Her baby died. But it did seem weird overall because the hospital did seem like it was for the most part like emptied out. Like where was the rest of the staff? Where were the patients and stuff? So anyway, long story short is that after we, we recorded the woman herself was in a video talking about how Ukrainian soldiers were like basically like holding them hostage at the hospital or something like that. And then in a typical fashion, just like the Syria chemical weapons thing, you have the slew of Western reporters who used that woman to bolster their narrative coming out and saying she's held hostage by Russians who have a gun to her head. So now eyewitness testimony Anyone coming out on video now, it's like that. that's just the narrative now. It's like, oh, well, like if someone comes out and contradicts what we said before, then like, oh, they're, they're just being forced to. It has the same flavor as like, oh, the CCP is like making that Olympian say this or, you know, Venezuelans have to go vote for Maduro because yeah. they're bribed with sandwiches. Course, yeah. It's just like, hmm. Well, it just we, you can get into this like, you know, game to infinity. Yeah. Just like in the same way the U.S. keeps saying that Russia is going to do a false flag and then Russia says that about us and then we say it back. It's gotten to such a strange level now where nothing, the truth doesn't matter anymore. It's just all about this real-time information war, gaining a little inch of ground, whose narrative wins. Wanted to mention the only thing about Ukraine that I saw since we last recorded that I thought was particularly impactful and a single news video clip was i think i don't remember what channel it was it might have been news 24 or france 24 where a reporter in ukraine who's like there like on the ground in ukraine reporting back you know like um to the news desk in france and i don't know if he let this slip or if this was just something that he didn't think it was like a big deal to say that the u.s government the u.s officials are basically like directing all the ukrainian movements like are basically like in charge of this situation he made some statement implying that 
it's is not just like a regular proxy war that like they literally are like directing the Ukrainian troops on what to do. Now, I don't know how true that is, but I think it's a really rather crazy admission if it is true. And I think it's like 100% likely that we're at the very least just feeding a shit ton of intelligence to like all of the Ukrainian military. And, you know, th there's this impression that, oh, the Ukrainian military has these little like inexpensive drones they're using to like get one over on Russia and like figure out where they're going and what they're doing. But I don't know. I mean, some of the, the amount of Russian casualties, I am sort of going in a slightly different direction now and thinking that there's a lot of support of being given to the Ukrainian army and these militias that like we're that's opaque to us. We're not really seeing it right now, but I, I think it probably explains some of how they're able to fend off uh, some of these Russian troops so well to some extent, because it is curious why the Russia Russians like incurred so many casualties at first. And I think maybe this in part explains it. So I, I don't know if you have a comment yeah, on no, that. It is super interesting. I did. I did hear that. Um, I would like to hear what other reporters who are not just blinded by one side or the other to come out mm -hmm. and actually talk about this. But of course, it's so hard to really get a true assessment of what's going on on the ground. But I'm I'm not surprised at all to hear that. What I find interesting is people jumping to rationalize or run counter narratives to like what's coming out without even knowing anything. And without going too much into this, because it, it, it's really just opening a can of worms, but it's just so funny how people like leap to say, oh, well, this doesn't make any sense for Russian soldiers to do this. Because like, why would they do that? Why would they kill civilians when like it could just be used as an as a NATO intervention focus point? And it's like, well, why would they invade Ukraine? I mean, you could just say that about the whole war. It's yeah. like, oh, the whole war is a false flag because why would Putin do this? It's totally counterintuitive to mm -hmm. his goals. And real. oh, if he's this 5D chess player, like that was really fucking stupid. So do you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. it's like to extrapolate that logic and actually apply it to the whole war shows that that just doesn't make any sense. Like you don't, war is hell. Once you open Pandora's box of war, anything is possible on the ground. Yeah. Because first of all, you don't, you can't even differentiate who's like an enemy or not. Like, it's well, just crazy. And it, it, it is weird to me that people get into these headspaces. And, you know, I believe some things that people would probably consider crazy about 9-11, um, even though I stand by them. There's a lot of people who, like, never really veered into that territory, you know, who are more like legitimate acting anti-imperialists who somehow think it's, it makes sense to, like, just dive into all these sort of, like, false flag conspiracies, like, every time, like, in Ukraine or with something in Syria, and it's just really weird to watch. It's like, wait a second, like, this seems way more wacky to me than, like, the 9-11 truther stuff that you've acted as, like, the domain of insane people. And you're out there just, like, armchair talking about how there's, like, these people under body bags, like, acting, they're, they're actors? Like, Jesus Christ. It's weird. Uh, I don't under... That seems like a weird disconnect. And I've also noticed that there's a lot of you know, people getting banned or suspended on Twitter for questioning some of the, you know, the the validity of, of uh, the claims about these war crimes. Like they're questioning things about them and their Twitter account will get banned. And it's unfortunate because a lot of people who are getting banned, I think, have been like really irresponsible and have been putting out like weird disinfo online, but I don't think they should be banned. You know, again, it's unfortunate that a lot of the people being banned are kind of acting irresponsibly yet. I don't think any of these people should be banned. And it is weird that it does seem like there's a narrowing, chilling effect 
that's now happening with like Ukraine and Russia specifically. Yeah, it's no longer just about COVID and no, COVID or, disinfo. Or Russian, it's like literally, yeah. and it's not just about Russian affiliated accounts. It's yeah. literally people who are just saying what can be construed as the Russian line, like Pepe Escobar, the guy we talked about last yeah, time. Yeah. I don't think he should be banned. No. Of course not. No. I don't think Scott Ritter should be banned. I disagree with what they're saying, but it's completely outrageous. It, it is. And it just keep it reinforces this idea that like, I, I just don't, I don't understand. I, I really want to know what the decision-making process is at Twitter for doing that. Because it just, to me, it just inflates those people's profiles. I, and I, 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 I don't get it. You know, sometimes I wonder if there's some reverse psychology thing. That sounds conspiratorial as fuck, but I honestly don't get it. You know, great examples of this in terms of people who seem really sketchy, who get elevated by being quote unquote censored are people like Tucker Carlson or the New York Post or Robert Malone, that sketchy biodefense spook adjacent doctor. But then we also have people like Tulsi Gabbard, who she complained about being shadow banned on Instagram. And at first I thought she was just being paranoid and weird. It looked like it did check out, not just being like whatever shadow banning means, but actually like putting up a warning when you would share one of her Instagram postings saying that there's like a potential it would contain like disinformation or something like that. And I'm assuming it has to do with some of the things she said about Ukraine. Now that to me just feels like it's sort of reverse psychology elevating these people and elevating them at the perfect time too. Luckily, she came out in support of the now trending and very controversial don't say gay bill in Florida and also said that it should actually expand all the way to like 12th grade, that like no kids in school, public school, should have anything about like sexuality taught to them. And I honestly have to say, I found this video where she talks about it on Twitter particularly shocking. I, I couldn't believe that she was going this far. It's really disgusting. You may have seen in the news recently, or you may be a parent who's experienced how parental rights are under attack all across the country as the government tries to usurp parents' rights and responsibility to raise their own children. Now we should all support the parental rights and education bill that recently passed in Florida, which very simply bans government and government schools from indoctrinating woke sexual values in our schools to a captive audience, a captive audience that is by law required to attend. But as I read the legislation, I got to tell you, I was shocked to learn that it only protects kids from kindergarten till third grade. Third grade? What about 12th grade? Or not at all? Now, government has no place in our personal lives. Government has no place in our bedrooms. Parents are the ones responsible for raising their kids and instilling in them a moral foundation. So... If anybody thought Tulsi had gotten over her past days as being like a bizarre, like groom, <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> use that word, but like indoctrinated homophobe by her father, Mike Gabbard, if they thought those days were long past, they're not. Because that's a very crazy thing to say. She's actually saying she wants the bill, which is already a fucking crazy bill, to be extended to be like, go as far as being like a high school senior. So... I, I just find her absolutely baffling as a politician still. What is her, even her grifting strategy doesn't make a whole lot of sense at this point. It made more sense before, but now I don't really get where, she, where she's going with this. 
let's get into the let's get into the don't say gay stuff. Screw Tulsi. For people who are, are not aware, uh, Ron DeSantis is a very very popular governor among the populist right, the so-called populist right, and not just the populist right like the ex-Trumpers or the people who are still really in love with Trump, but also libertarians. And I discovered this just a few months ago from speaking to libertarians that they're concerned about how many of their colleagues are like secret or open Ron DeSantis stands. And I, and I initially found that really baffling because I'm sitting there thinking, well, wait a second, isn't this guy like Marco Rubio level, like neocon, like Florida neocon, like classic Florida, which is like spook central USA, neocon, water carrying, Israel lobby, water carrying, anti-Cuban, like all the same thing Rubio is. So I was confused and it eventually made sense to me by these people explaining to me that, well, he's developed some like cred where some of these libertarians have become like single issue. Like if someone's COVID politics are good, they can like be willfully blind to everything else and just think that this person is like a hero against like the draconian COVID totalitarianism as a lot of these libertarians see it. I don't really pay too much attention to libertarian media, you know, whether it be like the more legit libertarian media or even like the watered down, like fake libertarian media, like the blaze, which again is run by a neocon Zionist named Glenn Beck. who's like a Mormon Zionist, but I didn't actually realize just how bad it was. And I'm just going to call some libertarians out here who some of our listeners may think are good or really sort of impenetrable. But I think that this really says a lot about the weakness of their character, that they can look past all these things I just described and basically suck DeSantis's dick. Starting with Pete Quinones on the Pete Quinones show, episode 697, how King DeSantis rules Florida, where Pete gives a detailed explanation about the style of governance Ron DeSantis is using to make Florida the freest state in the nation. Now, that doesn't sound that bad, right? Maybe it just sounds kind of lukewarm on Ron DeSantis. Well, unfortunately, the Ron Paul Liberty Report actually, I think, really helped elevate and add credibility to Ron DeSantis by continually praising him for his COVID policies and ignoring everything else about him. Ron Paul did a video report on February 23rd, 2021, why Floridians and non-Floridians love DeSantis. A tweet from March 15th, 2021 says, cheers for DeSantis and Floridians. And he even seems to want to clout chase or whoever's running Paul's account on, on Twitter seems to want to clout chase DeSantis. Simply Ron Paul just tweeted out, mentioned in this clip at Governor Ron DeSantis. Another video report the Ron Paul Liberty Report did on May 4th, 2021 is praise for Florida's Governor DeSantis, who keeps delivering the good news. Someone that a lot of libertarians really look up to that they think is very legit is a guy named Thomas E. Woods. Now, Thomas E. Woods is photographed looking like he's in adoration of uh, Ron DeSantis standing next to him. Libertarian hero Thomas E. Woods thinks that DeSantis is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. So somehow Ron DeSantis has gained this in inside libertarianism where because of his COVID policies and his stance that people think he's some kind of anti-establishment hero. And I think that's incredibly 
dangerous or just strange that a movement like libertarianism that has classically been very anti-Israel, has been very anti-neocon, could look past all of these very over-the-top things about Ron DeSantis. Starting with the fact that Ron DeSantis led the fight against BDS, probably one of the most prominent governors to do that in the country. Florida, of course, has anti-BDS laws, just like Georgia. This was sort of represented as like a fight against anti-Semitism. And of course, that's how he would spin this as well. This is an article from the Electronic Intifada from June 14th, 2019 by Nora Barrows Friedman. Florida passes law protecting Israel from criticism. Florida has passed a new law to redefine anti-Semitism. Under the state's legislation, it would be illegal to speak out in public institutions against Israel's human rights violations. This means that someone advocating for a single democratic state in which Israeli Jews, Palestinians, and all others have full, equal rights could fall afoul of the law. Governor Ron DeSantis signed the state bill while on an official trip to Israel and the occupied West Bank. During his trip, DeSantis visited Ariel University, located in a settlement in the West Bank, which is illegal under international law. At Ariel, he received an award in honor of his, quote, dedication, leadership, and commitment to the state of Israel. He also met with Sheldon Adelson, a top funder of the Republican Party. Florida's House Bill 741 redefines anti-Semitism to include, quote, applying a double standard to Israel by requiring behavior of Israel that is not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation or focusing peace or human rights investigations only on Israel. The law also says that speech, quote, delegitimizing Israel by denying Jewish people their right to self-determination and denying Israel the right to exist is considered anti-Semitism. Such tropes are classic attempts to censor criticism of Israel's state ideology, Zionism. The law uses similar language to the definition of anti-Semitism from the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance which has been pushed by Israel lobby groups. A free speech organization called FIRE said that Florida's new anti-Semitism law dramatically undermines the governor's initiative to promote campus free speech. It labels criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism and will serve as a tool to suppress student and faculty speech around one of the most hotly debated topics of our time. The new Florida law will invite punishment of students and faculty who wish to speak out for Palestinian freedom and human rights. Mira Shah, senior staff attorney with Palestinian Legal, told the Electronic Intifada. Now, I also should mention that around this same time, while DeSantis was doing this as governor, um, a bill gets passed to the Senate that encourages states to punish supporters of the BDS movement, which included the support of New Jersey Democrat Cory Booker. At the same time, Ron DeSantis pushed through this anti-BDS legislation. He also donated $2 million to Jewish day schools, specifically for security at Jewish day schools following the anti-Semitic attack at the Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. And at an event hosted by the Jewish Federation of South Palm Beach County, Ron DeSantis said, Florida is the most Israel-friendly state in the country, and we will not stand for discrimination against the Israeli people of any kind. By calling for increased security for our Jewish day schools, 
punishing companies that participate in the boycott, and taking my first trade mission to Israel, the Israeli people can be assured that they have no greater friend than Florida. BDS is nothing more than a cloak for anti-Semitism, and as long as I'm governor, BDS will be DOA. I cannot wait to strengthen the already unwavering bond between Florida and the great state of Israel. Now, Ron DeSantis was pretty unknown uh, when he was a congressman for the 6th Congressional District of Florida. He served from 2012 until 2018, and he was virtually unheard of during that period. I mean, during the Trump administration, I don't really think that he was hardly on anybody's radar at all. So he got a huge amount of money uh, for his Florida gubernatorial campaign. Um, He spent far more than the average congressman running for office. I think that that's an indication in and of itself that he was sort of plucked out of obscurity at this stage of his career to really go over the top and become governor of Florida. Now, what did he do in terms of his foreign policy votes? How anti-establishment is he when he comes to foreign policy in terms of the consequential votes he made as a congressman? Well, according to Ballotpedia.org, he voted for pretty much every defense appropriations bill you can imagine during his term in Congress. Just an example of what he actually voted for. He voted for H.R. 3364, Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. It proposes putting new sanctions on Iran, Russia, and North Korea. Um, He voted for several appropriations bills that enrich uh, the CIA and the intelligence sector with money. Um, This shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. There's really never been anything about DeSantis, as far as I know, where he has sort of come out like Trump and acted like he's against the CIA or against intelligence. Just a little bit more about his background in general. DeSantis' own sister died very suddenly at the age of 30. Uh, I think she died sometime in 2015. Um, Why am I even bringing this up? Well, I think it's an interesting story that could be there that is unexplored about maybe his family relations. So what I mean by this? Well, if you look up anything about her um, and her death, I was not able to find an official statement from Ron DeSantis himself. I found something from his press office where he tweeted something that was like a couple paragraphs long about her death. Strangely, her family put up a GoFundMe page for, I think her name was Casey DeSantis, and the GoFundMe page never reached its goal. In fact, it fell very short of its goal, something like it only raised something like 15 grand when the goal was, was 25 grand. Um, now, I don't know. I mean, I could be reading into this a little bit too much, but it seems to me like there's some possibility here that Ron DeSantis was estranged from his sister and their family even when she suddenly died that there was not any sort of mending of that, whatever happened there, because he was serving in Congress at this point. You would think that at the very least, he could have drawn a little bit of attention to her family's GoFundMe page. I have no idea. I don't know. Um, And it seems like her death was caused by a pulmonary embolism from what I can see online. Rhonda Santos, also a heavy promoter of regime change in Cuba, for a Florida governor, he probably promotes it and leans more into that than any other governor that in recent memory. For obvious reasons. Yeah. He also not just 
advocates for regime change. Now, remember, this is as a governor. He also advocated for the removal of Maduro. And this is what he said in tweets. From Cuba to Venezuela, we must continue to fight for freedom in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, that sounds like an odd thing for a governor to say. It sounds like a very neocon, like John Bolton style thing to say. He says, we also know that the despair in Venezuela wouldn't be possible without the nefarious influence of the Cuban government. I would like to see the Castro dictatorship go the way of Maduro and to see a free and democratic Cuba take its place. The sad thing about this tweet is it was actually tweeted after Fidel Castro died. <laughs> so he didn't like he, he wasn't even like keeping up with the current like Cuban government at this time. <laughs> Very sad. Oh, and then he says, Senator Marco Rubio and I are asking President Donald Trump to denounce Castro's successor, eventually learned that Castro died, as illegitimate in the absence of free, fair, and multi-party elections. This letter was signed by Ron DeSantis, Marco Rubio, Ted Yoho. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis showing his support for the Cuban people with a visit to the Freedom Tower this morning in downtown Miami. You've got a lot of people who are standing up and fighting against a brutal dictatorship. Governor Ron DeSantis says the time is now for change in Cuba. We need to do more as a country to stand for people who are standing for freedom. Hundreds of Cuban Americans and others demonstrated in Miami on Sunday with a caravan of vehicles from Tamiami Park to the Freedom Tower. You've had almost no support whatsoever from the Biden administration, and I think that they're missing a historic opportunity uh, to be able to make common cause with people uh, who just want to be able to live in freedom. So earlier today, demonstrators in Miami took over the Palmetto Expressway, and there's been questions about these demonstrations happening in light of the state's new controversial anti-riot law. Hey, you see the crowds here in the street, uh, blocking part of Columbus here. They were blocking part of Dale Mabry earlier, essentially in violation of that new law. We aren't seeing any arrests. And so the governor, he was asked about this apparent sort of uneven application of this new law earlier, and he answered it this way. I think that people understand the difference between going out and, and peacefully assembling, which is obviously people's constitutional right, um, and attacking other people or burning down buildings or dragging people out of a car and doing that. So, uh, they're, so they're much different situations. And uh, but what's going on in Cuba in particular, you know, those are not just simply normal run-of-the-mill protests like we would see here in the United States. So essentially a non-answer. We obviously have to stand with the people of Cuba against the communist dictatorship. And one of the most effective things we can do as a country, and we need President Biden to step up to make this happen. And I've spoke with the FCC Commissioner Carr on the phone. We can be able to be helpful to getting internet back onto the island of Cuba. The one thing that communist regimes fear the most is the truth. And if we're able to help Cubans communicate with one another, also communicate to the outside world. Uh, that truth is going to matter. That truth, I think, will be decisive. And so, Mr. President, now's the time to stand up and be counted. I mean, it kind of just reminds me of Trump. It's like throw out a couple populisty sounding things, even though it's really hard to quantify even what that means. It's not like he's talking about raising taxes for billionaires or providing health care for people or anything like that. No. It's just simply s siphoning all of this um, energy and funneling it into like the anti-lockdown, anti-mandate stuff mm -hmm. and being heralded as like the hero of COVID because he had 
these policies and like what else about him even makes him populist in any sense of the word? Well, here's the strange thing. Cuba is not only like spook central USA where a ton of deep state operations and black ops operations revolve around. It's also classically, it has arguably populist energy in it that happens to be in line with some of the most vicious neoconservative policies that the U.S. government wants to push. You mean Florida? What did I say? Cuba. (laughs) Yes. Florida happens to have large sectors of their population that are very Zionist and very anti-Cuban, who a lot of them happen to be Cuban, who are like anti-communism. So you could make an argument that it's like he's able to blend or sort of create this populist persona by, you know, representing some of those neocon issues because there is like a Florida does sort of represent this section of the population that provides energy for that. So Florida, I think, is very key for this reason. But he has become the nexus point for like a new sort of version of Trump populism that seems much more, I think, instructional. These are talking points given to him. He was sort of plucked out of obscurity. He has a Buttigieg-ish rise from the military. He has a mysterious military like black spot on his military timeline as a JAG officer. He worked at Gitmo and in Iraq. And his people who worked with him claim that, oh, he was there in Iraq to make sure that people follow the Geneva Conventions. Yet there's hardly any record of any of his activities. Well, when that happens, well, why is it um, fair to call Buttigieg a CIA plant who is doing like some kind of CIA work in Afghanistan? But this guy, Ron DeSantis, has this mysterious black mark in his time overseas And he doesn't get that accusation, yet his whole trajectory seems like it fits in line with this very specific, like, faction of deep state hawks in the U.S. government that, like, go all the way back to, like, the Reagan era. And this even goes as far as him not just praising anti-Castro Cubans or, like, hoisting up that energy. He's also praising the Bay of Pigs specifically. He celebrates the Bay of Pigs like veterans multiple times. He gave a medal to someone who was involved in the Bay of Pigs. I didn't realize that that was like something that was considered a heroic thing that the (laughs) governor of Florida celebrated, but apparently it does. And he's done all these sort of like anti-Marxist regime conferences with all these other like congressmen and senators who are basically neocons where they basically talk about Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua. And, you know, he's there sort of, it's sort of almost like a Zionist, like pro-Israel conference, but it's like, all these like neocon hawks are against these communist or socialist regimes. And just to finish up this rant about DeSantis, I mean, he goes out of his way uh, to promote regime change in Cuba. It's not something a typical governor would do. You look at the amount of tweets and energies put into this, it's incredible. While he was governor, he also was a heavy proponent of stopping the Iran deal and like preventing it from ever happening again. Here's some tweets that he wrote. Strengthening state authority to issue sanctions against Iran, world's leading state sponsor of terror, will bolster national security. The U.S. needs to stand behind the, per- the protesters in Iran. They are marching against a brutal Islamist tyranny, and this could be a historic opportunity for the Iranian people. I applaud Prime Minister Netanyahu for making the case against Iran deal. Israel is such a staunch ally, and we share mutual interest in preventing Iran from expanding its influence and exporting jihad throughout the Middle East. And yeah, he also says that he wanted to be the most pro-Israel governor in history. 
This was like a promise and a pledge he made even as running for governor. For example, he said, when I visited Israel in May, I was the first Florida governor to cross the green line into Judea and Gush at Zion, as I promised to be the most pro-Israel governor in the U.S. Over the course of five days, the governor led a delegation of about 90 Floridians who worked on forming stronger bonds with the state of Israel. Today, the governor met with Israel's prime minister and paid tribute to the lives lost in the Holocaust. The governor left two notes at the Western Wall, one asking that Florida be spared from a hurricane this year, another on behalf of a young constituent. The Israeli media is covering the governor's visit, even asking if he's planning to run for the White House. Are we going to see you as a candidate for the presidency of the United States? Uh, certainly not in 2020. You can guarantee that. Well, during the visit, the governor met with several Israeli political leaders, but not with opponents of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, Hamas, which is a terrorist group, raining down rockets on civilians. And make no mistake, Hamas is a terrorist group. They are at fault on this. Israel has every right to defend itself against Hamas. And I think if you look at what's going on here, it really isn't so much about Israel. It's about Hamas trying to stake a claim uh, to be the leader. I think this is Hamas's attempt uh, to capitalize on that. Uh, but our ally Israel has a right to defend themselves. And what's going on by Hamas is an absolute disgrace. It's interesting. We did the trade mission to Israel my first year in office. and. We've recently been dealing with, uh, and I'm, we did a whole bunch of stuff, academic engagement, business engagement. I mean, it was really an incredible trip. We have Israeli companies uh, that are actually helping Florida meet some of the needs. And so we really appreciate the relationship that we have. And I was there when they actually uh, opened the embassy, which is a really incredible experience. You know, we have to deal with anti-Semitism that I think if you look back 20 years ago, anti-Semitism is worse today than it was, which is really incredible that we would be seeing that. And I think the best way uh, to do it from a, a position in elected office is we got to go on offense against anti-Semitism. I think we've done a good job uh, of doing that in conjunction with the Florida legislature. My first year in office, um, you know, we signed the anti-Semitism bill into law. Actually, when we were in uh, when we were in Jerusalem, uh, that basically says, you know, anti-Semitism is akin to uh, how we would treat racism. It has no place in our academic institutions, not just K through 12, but also higher education. And we thought that that was very important and send a strong message. Also, when I first came into office, you had Airbnb uh, that was engaging in activities that violated Florida's BDS law. We spoke out on that immediately. I think when you look to see some of the things that are happening in Israel, the demonization of Israel uh, really feeds anti-Semitism. And then it continues with some in my opinion, very weird relationship between not just the sort of spiritual relationship between him and, and the Israelis in Israel and, and wanting to be pro-Israel, also specifically with the IDF. Ron DeSantis, for people who don't remember, actually called out the IDF to come help with the Miami condo collapse rescue effort. And it culminated with an impromptu controlled demolition of the still standing second tower of the Miami condo. What in the fuck was with that weird ass shit? And how can people <laughs> look at all this together and be like, this guy's an anti-establishment hero who's like fighting the deep state. 
Prominent among the search and rescue teams at the Champlain Towers south this week was a team from Israel. Working at the site of the high-rise collapse, he is the commander of the Israeli National Rescue Unit and joins me now from Surfside, Florida. An Israeli search team is also on the ground helping Miami-Dade's urban search and rescue force while explaining to families of the missing that the most experienced crew is on the job. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. And here's something else. Here's a DeSantis fan, actually, who randomly found my thread on Twitter, sent it to somebody else who was praising DeSantis, a libertarian, and said, the skepticism I have towards him is mostly his background. Way too obviously a political rise or career path. Very Buttigieg-esque. Well, what does Buttigieg-esque mean? And this is a, a pro professed fan of DeSantis admitting that his rise is Buttigieg-esque. Well, Buttigieg-esque to me means CIA-esque. <laughs> and... Right. Look at all the shit that he's doing. Come on, man. This guy is obviously some kind of deep state tool. I, I don't see how you could see this any other way. So this is all bringing me to this larger point of the don't say gay bill that has suddenly catapulted the right wing rhetoric into a new level of not just like returning back to the QAnon mentality, but like actually using the word groomer to describe anybody who's pushing back against this bill. Groomer, meaning a pedophile, a literal pedophile. So, Abby, I don't know if you have any comments on anything I just said. I mean, before we get into the nuances of this horrific piece of legislation, it is really interesting that someone like DeSantis is painted as this renegade, this renegade populist standing up to the deep state. To me, all of these bills, by the way, yesterday, he just signed into law a 15-week abortion ban. Yeah. So now it's similar to Texas, and we're going to get into all of that. But what, what this says above all is that this opposition to the woke culture that is being adopted more and more, you know, acceptance of LGBTQ people, the, actually the celebration of LGBTQ people, incorporating that into mainstream culture is causing such a backlash. It's just so funny that this is painted as like populist and good and like somehow standing up to this entrenched power system when it's like, I'm sorry, but that at the end of the day, trans people are the most marginalized people in this country, like one of the most marginalized identities. Mm -hmm. um, and so are LGBTQ people. I mean, try being queer outside of like San Francisco, Los Angeles and Manhattan. See how fucking fun that is in the rest of the country. So it's just this crazy culture war that is completely fake, completely manufactured. And then it's being lot like these people are lauded as somehow heroes standing up to like woke identity, uh, like and, and not just called out for who they fucking are, which are crazy religious bigots who are bringing us back 50 years ago. Yeah. And I think that back during the 1980s, there was a lot more organic evangelical energy against homosexuality, LGBT, anything. And people like Anita Bryant, as phony as she was, there was something that seemed more organic about that. Even though it was obviously like being, you know, completely riled up by like political factions in the US as well. This seems this return to this mentality by someone like DeSantis to me just raises a lot of like suspicious signals. Mm -hmm. And I say this while putting on my tinfoil hat that I do have to wonder 
after the QAnon died down and sort of the results of that were sort of assessed, we sort of had like an auditing of it and be like, damn, what the fuck was that shit? Look how crazy that shit was. Like, was it Ron Watkins? What happened? Like, what was all that? <laughs> was it a psyop? Why was Michael Flynn saying we should do martial law? Like right before this, he did the pledge. You know, all that shit was crazy. But I do have to wonder, and I still wonder, was part of that egged on by aspects of U.S. intelligence or people in the U.S. government who wanted to create a strategy of tension or sort of divide and conquer effect in this country? And now when I see Ron DeSantis like creating or reopening that, that energy that was there from QAnon with this Don't Say Gay bill, I do have to want, think back to what I've just said about him being a possible intelligence asset, like tool of the deep state. What if this is some also has some kind of role to play there where it's like there is some element of truth to the idea that populism is dangerous towards power factions in this country, like genuine populism, not talking about, oh, the right and the left, you know, the alt-right and the alt-left need to work together, like those kind of populist unions. I just mean that I do think that there is a reason why the people in power, they benefit from dividing society to this extent and, and basically tearing open these like old wounds that I thought were like largely healed or had been mended over time. I do have to wonder if this is, has some kind of strategy of tension purpose behind it. And for people who don't know what that means, it basically is a classic technique used by political leaders going all the way back to the origin of like kings and, and you know, all types of governments where a leader will put out rhetoric designed so that that leader's followers will commit violence sort of on their behalf, but it like cannot be like directly pinned on them specifically. It's kind of like what Trump did a lot. Exactly. And did Trump do that organically because he's just a crazy person or were people egging him on into that? And I do wonder still if there was some kind of aspect of him where he was like a tool, you know, like Sarah Palin called him a golden wrecking ball. I mean, what if that's partly true, but a golden wrecking ball like for Actually, who? Trump is just maybe the kind of person who absorbs what the last person told him. And like his inner circle was really like Stephen Miller, who really was like total Nazi adjacent. And like, what if Stephen Miller was just like, well, there's a lot of good guys on like that side, too. And then just Trump went out and he's just like, there's a lot of good people on both sides. Yeah. Like, I mean, it could have just been as simple as that. But well, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder, like someone like Bannon and, you know, his people like that and Flynn, these military intelligence people, people like Steve Pachenik, you know, the whole narrative about Trump being recruited by a group of like insider patriots, you know, or whatever. Part of me wonders if he, I mean, if he, on some level, he was a tool for a power faction, not saying he was recruited to, you know, to arrest Hillary Clinton in the actual QAnon nerve. I mean, like he was just a tool of some faction of power, but he just like, wasn't complacent enough and too erratic, you know, to, to be useful for that long term. And I think that's ultimately why he probably lost. I, I do think there are probably people working against him. Anyways, I'm going off on a total fucking tangent. I did want to mention one last thing. You mentioned these weird bills, how many bills DeSantis has signed just recently that are trying to like inflame the culture war. He also has signed into law like neocon bills against China, <laughs> 
just a few months ago, he actually signed two bills into law that were designed to combat foreign influence in Florida's universities from countries deemed hostile to the U.S., especially China. And this is what he said. If you look right now, there is no single entity that exercises a more pervasive, nefarious influence across a wide range of American industries and institutions than the Communist Party of China, DeSantis said at a bill signing ceremony. Academia is permeated with its influence, he said. I mean, Jesus Christ, that's... Yeah, dude, in my neoliberal indoctrination, I definitely was inundated with communist propaganda, pro-China communist propaganda. What reality are these people living in? It's fascinating, actually. And really what it shows me is it's all underpinned by anti-communism. All of this, which is super disturbing. It's like, yeah, here we are, you know, 2022, and anti-communism is still like the driving force of neoconservatism and so much more repression. And it's it's sort of horseshoed around or there's a meeting point between this neoconservatism and this sort of populist anti-corporation thing, too, right. which is strange right. because now they can actually do the craziest rhetoric ever, which is essentially saying that a corporation like Disney is communist, not just because it's like in collaboration with the CCP, which is like one of their big narratives, but that it's that like the corporation itself is, it's like, whoa, wait, wait, wait a second, put on the brakes. Like, how have we gotten to that level? It's one thing to just say like any Democrats are communists, which they've been saying, you know, Hannity's been trying to say that for forever, but to say like a corporation, like Disney is communist is just absolutely out of the realm of a reality. I don't even know how to address, like, how do you even talk to someone who's saying you something like that? You, you literally can't. That's the problem. It's like, it is kind of the same as saying Biden is a communist, All you know, the Democrats are communists. It's like kind of the same vein of just like QAnon ideology because it's so ludicrous. How do you even get on an equal playing field with someone to address reality if this is where they're at? But it's very scary because this guy's a huge, powerful governor who's slated to potentially be the next president of the fucking United States. Can you describe what is the don't say gay bill and the whole Disney controversy and where this is coming from? Like how Disney's involved in all of this? It's a strange series of events and it's going to take a little bit of unpacking. Okay. But yeah, I can. So essentially this don't say gay bill gets signed in Florida. And what the don't say gay bill brings up is something that I would say kind of comes from, at least on the surface, seem to come from this idea that like trans children is like this thing that the right made a, a really big issue out of. It became like almost like a wedge issue on like the intellectual dark web circuit and all that kind of shit too. So it's like, are as a child, you know, who's a certain age, are they, do they have any enough understanding to be able to like self-identify as a different gender than they were born with? And that's like the more polite way of saying, you know, what they act and what the type of things they actually say. And Jesse Signal and a lot of other people have sort of gone into that realm too. But this, I think, is is not just saying that like children should not decide. Because then, then there's it sort of gets into this topic that like, well, you know, should schools facilitate counseling about a kid confused about their own gender? And do parents have the right to know that that child is like talking to them, even if their parents are like virulently anti-gay and will like punish that child at home. You know, that became sort of this like gray area, like intellectual dark web, like thing that people talk about. But they don't say gay bill takes it to like a new level where it's a very overtly right 
anti-LGBT in like the classic sense, like not even really trans is, is not even the main thing here. It's that it is trying to overtly ban not sex education because sex education is still something that's like done in elementary schools in like fifth grade. And a parent has the right to opt out their children. Like, I don't know if you remember, Abby, I had kids in my class, like at least one that I can remember who had very religious parents who wasn't in the sex education part of fifth grade. I remember very distinctly his parents not like taking him out. So he wasn't there for it. So that's always been the case. And having problems with the fact that one of our teachers was just gay. Oh, well, yeah. Like my third grade teacher uh, in elementary school was not even openly gay. It was just, he was just flamboyantly gay in a way that even as a child, it was like unmistakable that he was gay. Like even as a third grade child, I understood without anyone like telling me anything that this man was probably gay because I guess in the eighties, there was already enough cultural awareness for me as a eight year old to know this, but I guess this, so this bill, what it does is it's saying that teaching children from ages eight down to kindergarten, because it's like the whole block of elementary school starting at kindergarten to third grade, the bill is, is basically saying that it is now against the law, Florida law for public school teachers to facilitate or to talk about themselves or school employees to talk about themselves to students from the ages of five to eight years old, anything having to do with sexual orientation. And that includes mentioning anything about two people of the same gender getting married together, being in a relationship together, mentioning anything about transgenderism to children, And what's interesting is the bill itself is so legally vague and open-ended that one legally could make the argument that this bill actually bans any discussions about sexual orientation at all to the point where even a child in a classroom saying something about how their mom and dad got married could technically be like not like too much for the, like it's, it's a blanket ban because it doesn't even explicitly ban discussion about like same sex unions. I don't think now I could be technically wrong about that, but from an analysis I've read, it said that the language was so vague. This essentially bans any discussion of sexual orientation. Can I jump in here really quick? Of course. Um, Just having a child who's almost two, you know, next year we're thinking of starting pre-K and all that. And it's just so fascinating because it's so, it's like one of the most central themes in a kid's life. It's like that's all they know is the unit where they're coming from and entering society and trying to incorporate their values and family into like the wider world and like the first steps of socialization and stuff. And it's like literally like one of the only frames of references that you have. Where do I come from? What is my family like life like? What is my home you know, and so it's just it, it's it's beyond comprehension that you would strip that ability for a child who isn't even capable of understanding why, because then it automatically stigmatizes them um, where they are now. Just riddled with guilt and self-loathing of, well, hold on, if there's a law, if the government is saying that this is bad, I can't talk about the fact that I have two moms or two dads. 
And just like trans rights activist and ACLU lawyer Chase Strangio said on Democracy Now!, this enforces shame and fear and confusion. We're telling kids to be ashamed of who they are and who their families are and to not have space in their school to talk about their existence, their lives, their connection, their communities. That has lifelong effects. We're already told, basically he's saying as trans people, we are already told to internalize deep shame and fear about our identities, about our existence. And so when we have the state using its power to reinforce that, not only does it cause internalized harm for these young people, but it allows others to bully these kids. And what what he's saying is so true. And I think that that's really like beyond the self-loathing and shame that is just built into something like this. It's the bullying and violence that it, it, this law paves the way for. And it's basically encouraging that violence against trans youth and against kids of queer and gay parents and it's just it really is incomprehensible to me and i think it gets a lot worse than that it's like that is definitely what you're saying is definitely going to increase that possibility which is already very tragic and what i'm going to lay out is it will show you that it's it can actually get way worse than that to a level that like makes q on actually maybe not even seem that bad i know that maybe sounds really hyperbolic but it's not, you know, it is kind of disturbing to think even like someone like Candace Owens is coming out right now and saying that children who are below the age of nine have no conception of like their sexual orientation, whether it be straight, gay, trans. And she's almost like kind of indirectly making an argument for like sexual fluidity, which is interesting. <laughs> but it's like at the same time, it's like I think a lot of people knew what their sexual orientation was at a very, very young age, including people who are gay. There are a lot of people who will attest and say, like, I knew I was gay from, like, when I was, like, two or three years old. Like, there are people who will swear by that. So I don't, I just don't understand how, yeah, you're basically making it so a kid can't even, like, you know, in their own mind. Like, you're almost, like, putting them in, like, a mental prison, too. It's like you're making it seem like there's an inappropriate age to come to this realization about yourself, even, which I think is like meant just mentally harmful, you know, even apart from like the actual violence and bullying. So I don't know if you wanted to comment on that. I mean, it's just sudden. forcing kids' minds into a prison, just like yeah. they always were, going back to basically alluding the fact that it's a mental illness and that you have to keep it all to yourself and whatever that manifests. And that's okay because it's better than having this be normalized. And mm -hmm. to me, it's just devastating because that that's one of the great things about where we're at, um, even though it has several negative connotations of, in terms of like adopting this superficial woke stance and representative stance that doesn't really get to the root of oppression, of course, with LGBT, LGBTQ people, the fact that this acceptance is is now prevalent in society is a really beautiful thing. The fact that you could be queer and be like a young child and, and just have that normalized in society where you're looking at movies or animation and you have your own, you know, something that confuses you maybe and you see it being normalized around you. And so you understand you can make that relation where you're like, oh, this is something that I feel. Maybe this isn't wrong. Like, you know, the heteronormative like trends. It's like maybe maybe this... I, I, I do belong and I do have a place in society 
And the fact that, of course, we're seeing this huge religious backlash, it's it's not surprising, but it does feel like you said, Robbie, that it's so much more manufactured than it ever was. It's it's so much manufactured, Abby, where I felt like I missed something when I started seeing some of the rhetoric flying out of people on Twitter and in the right uh, media ecosystem, because I, you know, definitely saw people getting into this weird headspace where it's like vigilante justice, uh, like for pedophiles, you know, like during the QAnon Pizzagate era became sort of like a common rhetorical point from just general Trump fans, you know, and they wouldn't say things like, I'm going to go kill Hillary Clinton for, you know, running like a child sex trafficking ring. But there was a lot of rhetoric flying around that had that flavor to it, that it was like, kind of like vigilante justice, um, torches and pitchforks. We got to go like kill these pedos. Like they've really crossed the line, (laughs) like kind of like thing. This, you know, seemingly came out of nowhere because it's don't say gay bill. It's like, okay, um, you know, like why, why all of a sudden now are people calling everybody groomers or basically calling like any liberal who defends or who goes against this bill a groomer? Because that's basically what I started seeing is people calling people groomers. So I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Yeah, because groomer just directly means pedophile. Like you are grooming children, like as yeah. a pedophile. And then and then I started seeing people saying seeing people say stuff like. What don't you understand, libs? Talking to kids about sex is grooming. Get it through your fucking head. Weird shit like that. I'm like, wait, wait a second. What do you mean talking to kids about sex? So then there, I just randomly saw this web or this uh, Twitter account called Libs of TikTok, which is sort of like it's in that vein of those Twitter accounts that are like right wing viral called like Libs taking L's or things right, like right, that, right. where it's supposed to be like liberals TikTok videos that like make liberals look insane or crazy. And sometimes they posted videos where it's like some Karen liberal lady like going off, you know, who looks who does look crazy. But then this they posted this one video uh, where it's like a gay teacher uh, talking about how he told his he his class for the first time that he had a husband and they just had a bunch of questions about it. And he explained things to them about it that were like very appropriate for children, uh, extremely just like cute. And it was like a nice like like video it was like kind of like actually a heartwarming video <laughs> to me that was my reaction to it and i'm watching and so the the actual comment that the libs of tiktok like account you know said above the video was like these degenerates need to all be like fired from public schools and like reported to the police and i was just like wait what i was like i've seen this libs of tiktok account before i've never seen it say anything that fucking crazy like what is going on All right, I'm jumping in here to add a tiny addition because after we recorded, a huge story broke that has to do with the account that Robbie is talking about right now. Um, The identity of the Twitter account, libs of TikTok being exposed. You know, this account had amassed an enormous following on Twitter and across other social media platforms by basically blowing up accounts of quote unquote liberals or teachers or just random queer people on TikTok. Um, while popularizing the idea that by simply talking about things like sexuality to kids, you are a, quote, groomer. You know, their defense, the account and all the conservatives and all the pundits who are defending this account and defending the fact that it needs to maintain its anonymity, is that all of these people are putting up their content online in the public domain already. 
And the libs of TikTok account is just basically popularizing or amplifying the already existing content that is all across TikTok by the users who are putting them up themselves. But these users are not putting them up thinking that they are going to be picked up by a huge right-wing audience and amplified to the extent that there's like a hate campaign driven against their accounts by a bunch of anti-gay bigots. So yeah, it's also just really hypocritical and kind of gross. And it's also like, why should we feel sorry for this person, right? So anyway, the account's influence also extends to the halls of power, too. This is where it gets really crazy because Governor DeSantis talked about being inspired by the account to actually pass anti-gay legislation. And Tucker Carlson, of course, the most watched news show in the country, frequently constructs stories around libs of TikTok posts. And he even conducted an anonymous interview with the woman behind the account in recent weeks. Taylor Lorenz wrote an article for the Washington Post that exposed the woman behind the account. But yeah, so she wrote this article for the Washington Post. She exposed the woman behind the account. And now there's this huge conservative backlash about exposing the woman's identity and how horrible that is and how people should have the right to do this kind of stuff and be anonymous, you know, set out campaigns to ruin people's lives for quote unquote grooming kids. Um, it, it all just has a very QAnon flavor to it also, all of this. But anyway, um, the woman is named Chaya Rychik. Turns out she was also at the Capitol building on January 6th. And here's where it gets crazy. She was also directly funded by Seth Dillon, the CEO of the Babylon Bee, and apparently was working with him the whole time. Like apparently he was involved in the registration of her website, which also cited her real name, by the way. So it's not like she hadn't had this information out there in the public domain of who was doing this. But it's just hilarious stuff, man. It's just hilarious stuff to pretend she isn't some well-connected political operative who's now being used as this kind of foil or I guess martyr for like a larger free speech culture war nonsense. And again, like I just don't give a shit that she was outed. Like she was trying to get people fired and directing campaigns against random queer people, like agree with whatever they're saying or not. You're totally fair game at this point if that's the kind of stuff that you're doing. If a politician is citing your media work your media influencer status to influence their anti-gay laws. And like, like I said, you've registered all of your websites under your name and you're being funded by this kind of weird dark money network, then yeah, like your identity is fair game. We kind of need to know who we're dealing with here, how extensive these networks are and how we can fight this information war. But then Robbie, here's just to drive home how stupid it all is and who are the main voices that are really leading this discourse, which is very sad. It's Tim Pool, you know, Tim Pool and the Daily Wire CEO partnered up to buy this shitposting billboard in Times Square that said Taylor Lorenz doxed at libs of TikTok. Just absolute top tier, like high level brainiac stuff, man. Imagine being as rich as that dude is having the money to do this kind of shit, and then actually doing this, like doing that with your money. And then to dovetail off of that from our last episode, Elon Musk keeps posting these weird groveling tweets to these like trolly right-wing weirdos like Steven Crowder and Tim Pool. Like today, I think he just posted that photo of Tim Pool in a loop, like confronting the Twitter person on Joe Rogan about Twitter's quote-unquote left-wing bias. 
Um, so anyway, it's just a really big red flag for, I think, a lot of people on the left and really like representative here of who Elon's reaching out to, who, who he's publicly budding up with, these kind of weird Trumpian figures on Twitter. And he just did this aggressive buyout to kind of just flaunt his status and influence as one of the richest men in the world, if not the richest man in the world. And that should really scare us about the direction of this new platform. And honestly, I hope he fucking ruins it. I really hope he just fucking ruins it. Like, I really hope he just kills Twitter once and for all, and it just goes the way of Facebook. And then I see a Candace Owens tweet where she's like, parents need to stop being afraid to, like, report teachers and, like, public school officials as, like, being groomers if they, like, talk to their kids about sex. So I'm like, okay, wait a second. Are they just talk saying, like, talking about sexual orientation? is like talking to a kid about sex. Is that what they mean? And yes, apparently that is what they mean. That is literally what they mean. Somehow this took a, like a rhetorical leap, like, like almost like, like jumped the shark or something, but like, it like took this, like it like skipped a few steps right, right. that makes sense. And all of a sudden it's like report teachers to the police who talk to their students about sexual orientation. So I'm just like, my mind is just blown thinking, okay, wait a second. How did the rhetoric get this intense? Where I mean, it is, it is so weird. It's like the simultaneous QAnon energy that basically dissipated after like the mass purging of all these QAnon accounts and of course Trump losing and that never coming to fruition. And then simultaneously you had all this talk and hysterical fear mongering about trans youth, uh, hormone therapy, gender surgery and also the bathroom stuff so i feel like it had oh, yeah. like everything merged yeah, yeah like yeah. and it got like really heated like really quick because this has been i mean this has been like like in the background for not in the background of course it's affecting a lot of people's lives but it's been like building for a long time with the trans stuff and then i feel like it just like converged with the q and energy absolutely and i think that this time it goes beyond just a gop political culture war, rhetorical talking point, red meat, this feels weaponized to a level that I think is like very shocking even to me for someone who like pays a lot of attention to right-wing media to a point where I think it's really exposing a lot of people and creating this level of divide that is just like so intense where it's like anyone defend, anyone pushing back against this bill and being like, how is this grooming? People, like there's like main now I see like mainstream like people like Candace Owens level mm -hmm. uh, saying things like okay groomer like just like in response to people like just respond like trying to figure out like understand why this is being said like anybody even trying to question it are being called groomers. Remember when Elon Musk <laughs> called the Thai diving rescue guy a yeah. pedophile? Mm -hmm. It's just like this this quick like these people are just so quick to be like okay pedophile okay groomer it's like whoa 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 okay projection much and so this is where it gets weird because like i am not in the business of defending a corporation like disney and this is again i think a clever right wing game set match type of thing but again i got to put my tinfoil hat on and say like this definitely takes on a to me a, it seems weirder than just a regular right wing op so what happened was Disney actually came out and uh, pushed back against this bill and released like a corporate statement about it. And 
also like posted some virtue signaling LGBT stuff, like a Mickey Mouse graphic with like the rainbow flag inside, like and on this their Twitter was, account. This was after CEO Bob Chapik initially refused to condemn the bill. And he was called out by employees for donating to politicians who backed the measure. Exactly. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. And people need to also remember that Florida itself has a gigantic area of the state, Orlando, the Orlando region, that is basically owned by Disney. Disney has complete political control of not just this region of Florida, but also enormous political influence over the Florida government itself. Now, the history of the CIA playing a huge role in working with major corporations ever since it was called the OSS during World War II should be no secret to any of our listeners. There's actually a whole book that's exposing how the CIA helped Disney conquer Florida to buy super cheap land. And I'm reading a Daily Mail headline version of this book expose on this, written by journalist Timothy Allman. The book is called Finding Florida, The True History of the Sunshine State. And in this book, I'll just read to you a sec from this Daily Mail article. It says, In Finding Florida, the author claims that Walt Disney conspired with William Wild Bill Donovan, the so-called father of the CIA, to establish a state within a state where he could control the overall development of Disney World. Donovan, founding partner of New York law firm Donovan Leisure Newton and Irvine, whose attorneys included future CIA director William Casey, now keep that name in mind, provided lawyers to help Disney distract attention from its plans, says Allman. These attorneys, it is claimed, provided fake identities for Disney agents, set up a secret communication center, and organized a disinformation campaign to make sure sellers had no idea who was buying their property. In this way, Disney was from the mid-60s able to snap up 40 square miles of land in the Sunshine State for a knockdown price of less than $200 an acre. Disney and his advisors then sought a way to limit the voting power of the private residents of the area to control the impact that local democracy might have on the company's plans. Now, this is uh, really crazy. This is almost like Chinatown-esque and similar to what I brought up before about Cupertino and Apple and Menlo Park and Facebook. These major corporations essentially want to buy out entire city governments because they know and understand that that gives them a lot of leverage. Well, how do you actually buy out a city government? Well, this is how you did it back in the day. Uh, it says, Disney employed a scheme devised by CIA operative Paul Hellowell to establish two phantom cities populated by hand-picked Disney loyalists around which Disney World would be based. The cities were based around Bay Lake and Lake Buena Vista, two artificial reservoirs Disney engineers created by obstructing the area's natural water flow. The company could then use these fake governments to control land use and make sure the public monies the theme park generated stayed in Disney's private hands. Now, this is just truly amazing that this is the case, uh, given how no Florida governor would ever bring this up. And no Florida governor would ever bring up the fact that Florida is spook central, CIA central, USA. People might think, well, the CIA headquarters is in Langley, Virginia, Robbie. Why are you saying Florida is? Well, you might not have been paying attention to our last year of Media Roots radio content where we developed what's called the 2001 Florida Attack Events Map, where we mapped out 
basically a new investigation of the 9-11 and anthrax attacks utilizing all public records of addresses in Florida. And there's also a historical chronology in there, which also shows how much military and CIA activity and black ops activity exists in Florida. How many businesses appear to be CIA cutouts? How many of these private airfields and private plane rental places work with the CIA and have gone back for decades working with the CIA in drug trafficking and things like that? Now, also don't forget that Jeb Bush was regularly accused when he was governor for being in bed with Disney and using this sort of mutually beneficial relationship with Disney to essentially censor Fahrenheit 9-11. Because I don't know if you guys remember this, but the Associated Press runs a story on May 6, 2004, saying Disney orders firm not to release Michael Moore film on Bush. And this is what then CEO of Disney said. We did not want to film in the middle of the political process where we're such a nonpartisan company. And our guests that participate in all of our attractions do not look for us to take sides, said Michael Eisner. Michael Moore responded by saying that Walt Disney Company is worried the documentary would endanger tax breaks the company receives from Florida. And Jeb Bush responded by saying, what tax breaks? We don't give tax breaks that I'm aware of to Disney. And what's crazy in here is it goes, Michael Moore then goes on to say that his agent, Ari Emanuel, got involved with Eisner and he talked to Eisner. But what's funny about that is Ari Emanuel actually has indirect connections to Israeli intelligence officials. So like, the, it just, it's just kind of a sad commentary on the whole thing. In addition to what I just said about Jeb Bush in the Florida centric 9-11 anniversary episodes we did, I go into detail about Jeb Bush potentially being involved in the 9-11 and anthrax cover-ups in Florida. In 2005, Jeb Bush's press secretary, when he was governor, Jacob DePetri, became a spokesperson for Team Disney in Orlando. So he made the transition from spokesperson for Jeb Bush to spokesperson for Disney World's PR in Orlando. Now, just a little bit additional information about the CIA and Florida. Not only did the CIA have a lot of hidden cutout fronts all around Florida that have been exposed over the years, you can read all about them, but NASA itself largely operates out of Cape Canaveral in Florida. And NASA itself has been basically in bed with the Defense Department and the CIA this whole time. Just like we were talking about with Elon Musk, this whole idea of space exploration and rocket manufacturing also plays heavily into the Defense Department. So NASA, in fact, has actually been caught working with the CIA in Florida. And this was actually published in a book called Spies and Shuttles, NASA's Secret Relationships with the DOD and CIA by James E. David. Now, who is Wild Bill Donovan as a CIA guy? Well, he's credited with basically forming what became the CIA. And in this big controversy, Harry Truman ended up not appointing him to be the first director of the CIA. Everyone really wanted him to be, but he was so controversial that some people actually believed that he should be executed. Now, some of the first inklings in public of what the CIA was going to be was written in a Washington Times Herald article on February 19, 1945, where Donovan said that he wanted to preserve the OSS beyond the end of World War II. Now, this Times Herald reporter eerily, very eerily, very presciently, actually describes what Donovan is proposing as an American Gestapo in the making. This is in one of the very first articles ever about what the CIA is going to be. 
and the article author says it is an American Gestapo in the making. I mean, hats off to that that author because that is fucking exactly what it became. Now, those lawyers who are working in this like private law firm basically doing CIA ops for Disney um, were also people who became heads of the CIA, uh, like William Casey. Um, other people who were founding OSS members that Bill Donovan sort of shepherded in got to the status they were include all the classics, Alan Dulles, William Colby, James Angleton. So I know that was quite a rant, but this just all goes back to this idea that Ron DeSantis does seem like he is some kind of intelligence agency asset. And there is something fishy about the government's relationship with Disney. This seems like a fake fight. So I got to wonder if this is just all some kind of, you know, performance, just like Ted Cruz grilling Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg in these congressional hearings. You know, it's phony as fuck. So I also got to wonder if the, how phony this is because this is what Governor DeSantis did in response to Disney releasing a statement eventually. This is from Orlando Weekly. Governor DeSantis responded to Disney's CEO Bob Chappick's statement against Florida's recently passed Don't Say Gay bill by trying to paint the biggest media corporation on earth as a bunch of reds. And this is what he said. How do they possibly explain lining their pockets with their relationship from the Communist Party of China. Because that's what they do. And they make a fortune. And they don't say a word about the brutal practices at the hands of the CCP. And in this rant he did about Disney, this is in his response to it, he also kept bringing up the Uyghurs. So this is actually <laughs> something that he's brought up before is like pro-Uyghur uh, stuff. But it's just really interesting that he immediately pivots to that. It almost seems Trumpian on the surface. But then again, I'm like, this seems like it's just being fed to him, this rhetoric. Well, yeah, I mean, good job trusting your instincts on that one, Robbie, because it does seem like what DeSantis is doing to Disney is all just political theater. I'm not quite sure what the real consequences are going to be in terms of impeding their capital. So let me explain really quickly. Um, first of all, the hilarious non-reality that DeSantis is painting that, you know, framing Disney as being communist. And it's really insidious because the fact that he is associated with populism and like a lot of libertarians are even butting up to him and praising him is super disturbing because his whole ideology seems to be centered around anti-communism and this hyperbolic cartoonish conflation with communism with Disney and with huge multinational corporations run by uber capitalists. So this is just such an incredible psyop. The adoption of an anti-capitalist idea of critiquing corporate power and basically associating it with communism. It's just totally fascinating, flies in the face of all logic, but this is where we're at, right? This is where we're at with the Republican Party. It's like, it's like once someone believes in QAnon and that the Disney Corporation is a communist corporation, how do you like argue your way out of that? Like where if you're starting from that absurd frame, like how do you even go back to where we can have a conversation about this? 
Yeah, so basically DeSantis just passed something that removes the special status given to a district that Disney controls and hosts its theme parks on. Um, This is some special status that was granted back in 1967, and it's called the Reedy Creek Improvement District. It's one of many, many districts that Disney's hosting its land on. And what this district did, the special status of this district back in the 60s, exempted Disney from several government regulations and certain taxes and fees. Basically adding to what you just described about the CIA helping Disney essentially conquer Florida. Well, Disney just has basically been governing itself. It doesn't only own entire cities like the City of Celebration and, you know, folds in like entire communities under its directives as a corporation, which is just really unmatched, I think, anywhere else in the country. Like, I don't even think, I know Amazon has like an unbelievable amount of power in places like Seattle and elsewhere, but, and I know that they don't pay taxes like at all. And that cities like big Amazon, companies like Amazon to come and then we'll give them deals in return being like, you literally don't have to pay anything to the state and just to like give us jobs, I guess. But I think that this is even something different. I mean, who knows, like potentially Silicon Valley corporations and Amazon and stuff have similar type of structures that grant them like an inordinate amount of power comparable to like entire local governments. But that's basically what happened in Florida, where Disney had complete control over the land that it was hosting theme parks on. So this goes back to a 1967 law Reading from NPR, Disney gained control over its theme parks and other attractions in 1967 when the state designated the area as the Reedy Creek Improvement District. The land measures 25,000 acres, which is nearly 40 square miles in central Florida. Disney operates like a county government, building and maintaining municipal services like electricity, water, and roads, and providing police and fire protection. It even taxes itself. (laughs) The setup was intended to give Disney autonomy while also relieving the counties of paying for new services and infrastructure in what was once a remote and rural area. So DeSantis just signed this bill that targets this district and five others that were created before 1968. Now, this is what's funny is that On paper, this looks great, right? It's like, oh my God, you're finally holding Disney to account and finally forcing it to like pay up, right? And removing or basically putting more red tape so Disney can't just like act on its own accord and do whatever the fuck it wants. But here's what's interesting about it is that once this special district is removed of its special status, the county is going to assume all the debt. (laughs) So like basically... What this is going to do is it's not going to force Disney to pay the billion dollars in bond debt. It's going to put the local government on the hook for the billion dollars that I guess Disney, like for some reason, Disney would owe. But instead, the government is going to owe it now. So, yeah, I mean, it's a punitive thing for sure, but also might be completely for show because I have no idea how much this is really going to affect Disney's profits In the grand scheme of things, it's just sad that this crazy right-wing Zionist fanatic that's super anti-gay and anti-communist is painted as, like, this right-wing populist who's standing up to corporate power, right? But it's just so annoying that this 
idea that populism is right-wing and that holding corporations accountable is somehow seen now in this right-partisan lens instead of across the political field. And it's all for the grossest reasons, too, right? That Disney is too pro-gay and grooming our kids instead of the fact that these corporations are obscene, that their wealth is extremely over the top, and all of them should pay taxes that are proportionate to their vast, vast profits and use of state resources. But we're never going to have that conversation. There's just going to be culture war to the end of time. And just more reasons to believe, even though this appears to be consequential against Disney, but more evidence to believe that this is a, some kind of PR stunt that's working in conjunction with this think tank, at the very least. I can't find much of the Manhattan Institute promoting Zionist material. Now, I'm sure it exists. I mean, they're a very far-right think tank. So if you find anything out there, please send it to me. But I do think it's very notable that the other two times that Ron DeSantis has waged some kind of PR war against a corporation and tried to pass legislation or tried to enforce laws against them to try to strip them of some kind of privileges or rights was against Ben and Jerry's and Airbnb for guess. Guess what it was for? It was for Airbnb and Ben and Jerry's expressing some kind of BDS pro-Palestinian point of view within their own policies. Yes, you heard that correctly. Before Ron DeSantis waged a war against Disney for going too woke and stripping their tax-exempt status away, Ron DeSantis actually tried to shut down Airbnb and Ben & Jerry's in Florida. This is from April 10th, 2019. Airbnb has reversed its has reversed its decision to remove rental listings of homes located inside Jewish settlements in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. And part of the reason they did this is because they got enormous pressure from different Israeli lobbying groups. But they also got enormous pressure from one specific state, and that state was Florida. Now, what happened exactly? Now, Dave DeCamp, who we've had on the show before, rightfully points out in a tweet from June 7, 2021, DeSantis sanctioned Airbnb when it decided not to list properties in the occupied West Bank. That's right. Mr. Freedom Governor penalized an American company for choosing to boycott Israel's occupation. The South Florida Sun Sentinel ran an article, DeSantis wrong on punishing Airbnb over Israeli decision. It's an opinion piece. It says, Governor DeSantis and the State Board of Administrators recently voted to sanction Airbnb by adding them to a list of scrutinized companies that abide by boycotts related to Israeli human rights abuses. Defending his decision, the governor says that what Airbnb is doing may violate Florida's Senate Bill 86, which opposes penalties upon individuals and businesses supporting the call for BDS in support of Palestinian rights. However, Airbnb has explicitly said that its West Bank decision had nothing to do with support of BDS. Now, what does that mean? Well, Airbnb actually released a statement saying that they are complying with international law because the settlements themselves are illegal. So what the Sun Sentinel points out is, so in effect, DeSantis is threatening to use his office to penalize a private company following international law. Even if Airbnb's decision was taken to support BDS, which this author is saying it wasn't, Florida would not have the right to punish Airbnb 
the right to boycott is protected by the U.S. Constitution. Florida's law penalizing support of BDS is also unconstitutional. I mean, that's pretty clear. So why is it, again, that DeSantis gets a pass just because of his COVID policies? He is literally banning speech. And again, you could say, oh, fuck Airbnb. They're, you know, they screw a lot of people and they've raised rent prices all over the country. Sure, this can apply to anyone. Now, what did he do to Ben and Jerry's? Well, let's find out. Ron DeSantis said this on July 22nd, 2021. He said, it has come to my attention that Ben and Jerry's has announced plans to remove its product and prohibit sales of its ice cream in Judea and Samaria. DeSantis wrote using the Israeli government's term for West Bank. Should the State Board of Administrators affirmatively place Unilever and its corporate entities on the scrutinized companies list, and these companies do not cease the boycott of Israel as required by Florida law, the board must refrain from acquiring any and all Unilever assets consistent with the law. Unilever is the parent company of Ben & Jerry's. I mean, absolutely ridiculous that this is, again, someone who's praised for being pro-constitution or pro-freedom. But notice he's going after corporations, not like people or professors. He's not waging like a war against like a single college professor. He knows optically what to do to sort of make it appear in populist wrapping paper, even though this is clearly being driven by like the Israeli lobby or these other forces in general. Now, what's another hint, potential hint, to what this is actually all about? Well, his spokesperson, Christina Peshab, kind of made it very clear, I think, in the initial official response to Disney going after Florida for the so-called don't say gay bill. She blasted Disney for failing to condemn the CCP's human rights violation. She argued the company has actively endorsed the CCP's mistreatment of ethnic and religious minorities and noted the company's disposition as much worse than silence. Disney has actively endorsed the CCP's mistreatment of ethnic and religious minorities, Peshaw said. According to Fox Business, Disney's live-action film Mulan was filmed in Xinjiang, with Uyghur internment camps edited out of the background. Disney actually thanked Xinjiang CCP officials, the same communists forcing Uyghurs into gulags in the credits of the movie. Kind of interesting, right, that Chris Rufo filmed a documentary about Uyghur soccer players in Xinjiang province, and here is... Ron DeSantis' spokesperson bringing up that as the response to Disney going after the Don't Say Gay bill. So I think this is a potential hint on what this is also about. Now, I know this sounds conspiratorial, but who benefits largely from the mistreatment of Muslims um, being laser-focused on China and, and taking up most of the dialogue about mistreatment of Muslims internationally? Well, I'd say two countries greatly benefit from that. And those include Israel and the United States. Israel has an open-air prison of their Muslim population, the Palestinians, that they treat basically like animals. And the U.S. has murdered millions of Muslims across the world for a phony war on terror. So it makes sense in some way to pivot all of this rage against the mistreatment of Muslims against China. And do you think DeSantis and his people actually care about this issue? No, it's inserted in there 
I mean, I think with someone like DeSantis, it's rather obvious. I, I don't even really feel too conspiratorial saying this. I think it's very obvious that there's some Israeli lobby influence playing into this. But what's the, what's the status between Disney and Israel? Is there any friction there? Now, this timing may not mean anything, but Disney Plus apparently is launching in June in Israel for the first time. It hasn't existed there before, even though people in Israel could probably use a VPN and watch it this whole time. That's interesting timing too. Um, it seems to maybe, you know, I don't know. Now, just as a side note, Disney, you know, more virtual signaling they did in this coordinated campaign against Russia, they also said they're banning theatrical releases of their films in Russia to protest the Russian government right now. God, just such phony virtue signaling. <laughs> like, Disney is just so stupid. Um, and, just, and just reminds me of just how disgusting Israel is. And anyone who's such a staunch advocate for Israel, namely Governor DeSantis, who claims, like you said, that he's like the biggest proponent for the Israeli government and the Israeli state in the entire country. And that's really saying a lot, considering the influence of Zionism and the association with Zionism, if you're a political candidate. Now, you bring up an interesting point, which is what is Disney's relationship with Israel? While this may be a stretch, and mind you, you were just presenting these puzzle pieces without really any definitive conclusion, but yes, apparently there has been friction between Disney and Israel in the past. In fact, in 1999, there was this major boycott against Disney by Arab groups for their Epcot Center Israel Experience. This Israel experience in the Epcot Center apparently allowed or allows, I'm not sure if it's an active exhibit today. If anyone knows this, please let me know. But it allowed a visitor to send a digital message via Mac computer, like a rolled up paper prayer, into a mock Western wall. Controversy erupted not over just the inclusion of the Israel experience, but also about the exhibit stating that Jerusalem is Israel's capital a claim that was not recognized by international law, but only by Israel. Now, for historical reference, Jerusalem is a very sacred and holy site for all religions, right? It has the Dome of the Rock. It has several other important sacred holy sites for Muslims to practice their religion. And of course, uh, the majority of Muslims and Palestinians living in the West Bank, of course, in Gaza, can never visit these holy sites in Jerusalem because they're forbidden, because they live in a police state military dictatorship. Israel captured Jerusalem in the 1967 War of Conquest and basically refused to partition it ever since. So Israel seized Jerusalem, claimed that it was theirs ever since. It was disputed ever since this time. Of course, U.S. politicians, including every Democratic president, always gave lip service to the idea that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. But of course, let's remember, Trump was really the first president that officiated it, that made it a thing, you know, standing there declaring that it was officially the capital of Israel. And this sparked the Great March of Return, which, of course, leads to, uh, you know, Gaza fights for freedom and so many more atrocities that happened after that. It's just really gross that they incorporated this Israel experience at the Epcot Center. I don't remember that when we were there, Robbie, but it just makes me sad. Just the fact that this was baked in, you know, to kids experience and just totally erasing Muslims at all from their sacred holiest sites. 
you know, another really interesting thing, of course, are these racist stereotypes that Disney perpetrated for pretty much its entire existence. But I think one of the movies that was one of my favorite movies when I was growing up that I knew every word. In fact, I, I just watched the remake of Aladdin the other day and I loved it. Like, I can't think of another movie, another Disney movie that I would watch as a almost a 40 year old adult and like really, really love it. Um, and the songs are really catchy. But back during the original Aladdin release, it got blasted um, because of its offensive portrayal of Arabs. Now, especially the opening song, according to the BBC, the well-loved soundtrack for the 1992 animation, A Whole New World, notably won Disney an Academy Award, along with another Oscar for the entire score, is actually an edited version of the one that was heard in cinemas. The original lyric in the first verse of the song Arabian Nights described Arabia as, quote, where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. Quote, Aladdin is not an entertaining Arabian Nights fantasy, as film critics would have us believe, wrote Jack Shahen in 1992, but rather a painful reminder to three million Americans of Arab heritage, as well as 300 million Arabs and others, that the abhorrent Arab stereotype is as ubiquitous as Aladdin's lamp. The film was criticized for perpetrating Orientalist stereotypes of the Middle East and Asia. The American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee saw light-skinned, anglicized features in the heroes Aladdin and Jasmine that contrasted sharply with the swarthy, greedy street merchants who had Arabic accents and grotesque facial features. I mean, it's so true when you think about it, which is really sad. It's like the light-skinned, you know, even though it's like this fantasy place that doesn't really exist like it was very clear what was happening and it was very clear the stereotypes of like the angry like evil arab were perpetrated and of course the darker skinned characters were the evil ones um it's just sad because you know nine years later was 9 11 and the clock completely reset and these stereotypes just became reinforced more and more and arabs just became vilified to a, a ridiculous degree so it's just sad to think back at Aladdin, um, you know, and it just became so ramped up. Sorry for this long rant, but I just wanted to talk about one more thing that was interesting is that even worse, Israeli government officials and business developers also went ahead and publicly announced that Disney was building a theme park in Israel. But apparently Disney shut it down publicly in a response. A spokesperson for Walt Disney Parks and Resorts told Fast Company, um, I guess that was reporting the news at the time, that Disney has no plans to build a park in Haifa. Haifa, of course, is an ethnically cleansed territory. However, local politicians New Linio and the Israeli press all confirm that the project is going ahead. So this was like at least 10 years ago. I want to say like 2008 or something like that. And then Disney kind of backed off. I'm not sure why. Like, why wouldn't they just completely move forward with these plans? BDS was barely a thing back then. And who knows? Like, I have no idea what internal pressure were making them, you know, denounce this plan publicly. But ding, ding, ding. It didn't even matter anyway, because in 2018, a city in Israel announced that a Disney Magic Kingdom knockoff park are, is going to be built in the Negev city of Dimona, and it's in the advanced stages of planning this park. So it's called the Park of Wonders, and it's slated to have a similar layout to Disney's Magic Kingdom in Florida, but with Jewish and Israeli themes. So 
the plans for the park are already drawn up. It's designed by the same company that planned Disneyland's Magic Kingdom. You know, it's just it's just interesting because it's not it's like worse than just a Disneyland resort. It's going to be like a propaganda resort that even the spokesperson for it said um, it's going to be 90 percent fun and 10 percent content. So 10 percent complete propaganda about why Israel's amazing and fucking Israelis are like the chosen people. And then 90% fun. So, like, you can just forget about all that stuff and just, like, totally have fun, dude. But, like, yeah. So, that's it. Should I get into the Manhattan Institute thing? Whoa, wait, wait. No, not yet. Because okay. I want to say one other thing that Governor DeSantis said. So, this is very Trumpian, too. The fact that Governor DeSantis is honing in on this anti-corporate, anti-deep state rhetoric um, when it comes to just reporters who are grilling him about this law. Like... For for example, this guy named Evan Donovan was just like, can I ask you about the parental rights and education? What critics call the don't say gay bill? Is it on the Senate floor? And he's like, does it say that in the bill? And the guy was like, well, we know that you support. And he's like, I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because you're pushing false narratives, a.k.a. fake news. It doesn't matter what the critics say. Evan Donovan, it says it bans classroom instruction on sexuality and gender orientation for who? Governor DeSantis responded, for grades pre-K through three, so five-year-olds, six-year-olds, and seven-year-olds. And the idea that you wouldn't be honest about that and tell people what it actually says is why people don't trust the news. You peddle false narratives, and so we disabuse you of those narratives. In another clip, DeSantis says, I don't care what the corporate media outlets say. I don't care what Hollywood says. I don't care what big corporations say. Here I stand. I'm not backing down. God, this is such fucking... Isn't this, like, fascinating? Like, to actually hear DeSantis talk about the corporate media. Well, it is so... It's like someone is trying to emulate Trump, but take out even, like, sort of the wild card actual, like, over-the-target little jabs and hits Trump would make. And they're only just using this rhetorical framing in a way that... It's kind of Tucker Carlson-like, too, because Tucker Carlson does that as well. But I think that what DeSantis is doing is more clever because it's like, what, what corporations? I mean, just Disney? I mean, obviously, dude, Disney, you're really in bed with Disney is the thing. Any Florida governor is. That's, that's by default. I guess I'm more impressed with him now than I used to be when I think we talked about a few months ago, you said that he might you know, run for president. I, I wasn't as like convinced, but now I'm like, yeah, this is actually, it seems like it's all sort of being set up. I mean, it's more obvious now. So that's going to do it here for part one of this two-part series on the don't say gay and anti-gay legislation sweeping the nation. Stay tuned for part two coming out very soon. That will go over much more. Be sure to subscribe to Media Roots Radio. Become a patron if you want access to one exclusive episode every month. There's dozens of hours of exclusive content that my brother has put together for you. Really fascinating deep dives on a bunch of things on an array of topics. So check that out at patreon.com slash mediarootsradio. Thank you so much for tuning into part one. We'll see you in part two.